At 27 minutes past the, past the hour, we, we turn from Therapeutic Thursday once again to Theological Thursday as we're joined by Pastor Robbie Pruitt. Robbie, an Anglican pastor from Ashburn, Virginia. This is uh, in Loudoun County, the, the, the uh, wealthiest, you mentioned Robbie, the wealthiest county in the country, was it? <laughs> Okay. Yeah, and the, one of the craziest, I think, sometimes, too. We're suburbs of Washington, D.C., and uh, it's a lot of fun. Ooh, yeah. Rob, good to be with you, Jim and David, on the Broken Road. Robbie, also Talk the executive director of Preserving Bible Times, and uh, so that Virginia election. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I voted so, hey, on yeah. Tuesday, mm-hmm. and um, yeah, they asked me if I wanted a sample ballot, and, and it was for the other folks, and I told them, no, thank you. <laughs> I was on a mission. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I kind of know who I'm gonna vote for before I get there. I don't, I don't yeah, need to figure so. it out while I'm on the fly. You know, yeah. right? Yep. Yeah, yep. That's just marketing, last minute marketing for the other mm-hmm. team. Yeah, I think, yep. I think right. it was. Yep. I think it was. Speaking of last minute marketing, I figured you could package today's topic as as a gambler at a card table, and and he mm. hands out three cards, and the the the, the guy across the table picks them up. He says, "Oh." First Thessalonians, second card, mm. oh, Matthew 25, third card, <laughs> Amos, Amos 5, All, Amos five? Get, 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 he'd probably trade that Amos card in, give me one, okay? <laughs> how, do you, how do you weave these three together? What is the commonality between Thessalonians, Matthew, and Amos? And by the way, I'm impressed with Amos. I had to look him up, learn a little about his uh, personal background, and, and fascinating guy, but how do you put these three together? Well, uh, number one, they're in our lectionary reading for this Sunday, ah, so okay. they, they were put together for me <laughs> along with Psalm 70, and uh, I didn't throw that card at you, but yeah. if it was a card game with three cards, I don't know what we're playing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. Old Maid, I think, is what we do. Yeah. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. I've never played that. That's why I'm ignorant about it. But mm-hmm. yeah, we, we've got uh, four readings. We've got Amos 5, 18 through 24, Psalm 70 on Sunday. The controversial First Thessalonians four thirteen through eighteen. Yes. And Matthew twenty five, the parable of the ten virgins. Matthew twenty five one through thirteen are the young women or maidens. There must have been a reason these three were selected for the same Sunday, though. Mm. Absolutely. Wanna... If you start uh, with Amos five eighteen, mm-hmm. you, you get right into it. Uh, Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Uh. So we're talking about the end times, eschatology. We, we spoke about this last week as well, because we looked at the parable uh, or the account, however you look at it, of Lazarus and the rich man a little bit when we were looking mm-hmm. at, at that. And, and I kind of oversold that, by the way, as a, a, an account. Uh, Dr. Kenneth Bailey uh, believes it's a parable. John Piper believes it's a parable. Um, and... Um, and and others believe it's a parable, but the reason I believe it's potentially an account, and others believe that it's potentially an account with the rich man and meaning, Lazarus, meaning an actual it, event. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Is and the reason I bring that up is it's very relevant to the day of the Lord because there's going to come a time when the door is shut, and we're going to see this in in the parable of the ten virgins that. There's a time in, in, in the account where the, the door is closed and the opportunity to come into the wedding feast is over. And we saw that in the account of the rich man and Lazarus when there was no moving from one state to the other, from 
the rich man could not go where Lazarus was in the bosom of Abraham. The reason that this is often looked at as an account, and I hold it loosely, I mean, it could be a parable. It's actually sandwiched. Well, there, the, you, you, I think parable. you gave me the definition of a parable, or at least one somebody's definition, that it's, it's an earthly story about a heavenly message. Right. And what's the issue with uh, the account of a rich man and Lazarus is there's no earthly, other than, you know, the recounting of when Lazarus was sitting begging at the rich man's gate, there's no... Um, there's no parallel. I mean, we get parable because we're, you're throwing a spiritual truth along an earthly reality, and it's really just the heavenly picture or the picture of the afterlife. And that, and Lazarus gets named. And if you notice, you don't have any other par- parabolic account where people are being named. And so this is fascinating. On so many levels. Well, again, well, this we, goes back to the the, the cultural thing and, and context. And in most of the other parables, you don't get a name, but you get a description of, of of who that person is. Whether it's because where they're from, or they're they're Gentile, or or they're they're Hebrew. Uh, it's the old uh, Hebrew custom of you are what you do. It's it's not your name that's important. It's it's what you do. It's what you, it's what God does that's important, not the name. Yeah, and I love uh, what Dr. Kenneth Bailey says in Jesus through Middle Eastern eyes. He he talks about a parable as being a home. He said it's less like a shell casing of a a bullet where you put a spiritual truth in and you fire that thing at for a singular purpose, and then what's left over is the shell casing, the parable. He said it's more like a house, like an empty house that you're invited into, and that house has multiple windows, which you can look at it, Hmm. look out these uh, different windows to get a different perspective. And so what a parable does is it invites us into the account or into the uh, story, so to speak, and when you're looking at the parable of the ten virgins, we are to look at – we can look out the different windows of this home, this parable – to see different perspectives. So you can look at it from the bridegroom's perspective. You can look at it from the the 10 virgins perspective. You can look at it from the bridal party's perspective as you, you're going through. Yeah, this is Matthew 25 we're talking about. Right, right. And, and all of this is related to the day of the Lord. So in, in verse 18 of Amos, it says, Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. For what good is the day of the Lord to you? It will be darkness and not light. So this is speaking of judgment, those who deserve judgment at the coming of, of, the, of the king, of the bridegroom, of um, the victorious king, as we'll, well look in, at. In, in a sense, this is, this, is, this is prophecy. It's kind of like a parable in a way, too, because Amos is describing, I think, the Assyrian invasion of the kingdom of Israel. He was writing for mm-hmm. the northern kingdom. not for He was from Judah, writing right. for the northern kingdom about the coming conquest by the Assyrians and the dark day. It would seem like the day of the Lord, like the world is ending for those people. Um, and, and yet it, it kind of... It sends chills down my spine like it's today when I read the news, you know? Absolutely. So darkness is judgment. Um, Amos is saying there's going to be darkness, not light, in, in regards to that that judgment. 
And that theme of light and darkness carries. And we're going to see this pop back up in the parable because the virgins have lamps. And five of them are foolish, and they don't have enough oil for their lamps, which means at some point, they're not going to be walking in light. They're going to be walking in darkness. So this is the connection of light and darkness and being ready. Are you ready when judgment comes? Are you ready when the end comes? Because uh, to quote last week and what we're speaking about with Lazarus and the rich man, the rich man was not ready. Uh, Lazarus was ready. The rich man was ready in his earthly life, but in the afterlife, he was not ready. He had lived in such a way that he brought upon himself judgment in the end, where Lazarus is living in such a way that he brought life in the end, and and he is there in, in, the, afterlife, in, the, in the afterlife in the bosom of Abraham. So that's the picture of are we ready or not, and whether or not the, the rich man and Lazarus is a parable or an actual account, and the truths remain. Um, the, the truth that's being told in a parable is timeless. So when we look at the ten virgins in Matthew 25, 1 through 13, we see that uh, you've got a wedding feast. You've got the bridegroom, which is here— the Christ figure, or, you know, because God is the bridegroom, the church is the bride. So you've got half or 50% of these 10 virgins, they're ready, they took their lamps, and they went out to meet the bridegroom, but five of them were wise and five were foolish. So five had enough oil to greet the bridegroom and to remain in the wedding party. Yeah, this is, this where, is a good time to interject some more culture about Jewish wedding traditions here, too. And and uh, I, I, I don't want to preempt you if you were going to talk about that, but the whole idea here is when there's a wedding that's going to happen, that is a, a ketubah, a marriage contract has been written, and that happens between the fathers of the groom and the bride, the groom then goes to prepare a home for his new bride. And typically, it's an insula home. He builds a, a, a 15 by 20 foot space next to his parents, or in his in the compound that they've established over multiple generations. And no one knows when he'll come back to claim his bride. She's not with him yet. He has to prepare this home. It's like my father has many mansions. That that whole parable, uh, that whole uh, comment from Jesus comes to mind. John 14. But absolutely. The, the John 14. One is, through six. The bridesmaids are there waiting for a groom, and they have no idea when he's coming back. So they right. need to be prepared with the oil. Some were and some were not. It could be as long as a year before that groom comes back to claim his bride and take her to his new home. So. Yeah, and I, I, would, I would argue that the uh, parable that we're seeing in, in Matthew 25 is when it's time for the wedding. So it's not, the runway is not quite a year. It's, it's any moment now. Mm -hmm. So the uh, bridegroom is ready. Well, they don't know when it will be is the whole idea. Right. Just like we a don't know when, when he's coming back. And so when the, when the bride, when the groom comes to take his bride to himself, this is what uh, Dr. Kenneth Bailey is saying in Jesus through Middle Eastern eyes. And, chapter uh, 20, I believe, of his book, what he's getting at is that the bridegroom comes with his entourage. 
to receive his bride unto himself from the bride's home. There, the people are waiting in anticipation for the wedding feast to begin. So the runway is any time now during this week, period. Uh, and the bridegroom comes and he parades his soon-to-be bride through the streets of the city towards the groom's home or wherever the wedding feast is being held. And so this is like a, a ragtag group of people. It's not necessarily mapped out or planned, and they're meandering through the city streets to return to the wedding feast. Now, this is a exuberant, spontaneous almost celebration. They're, they're weaving their way through the streets, um, and they're announcing that this wedding feast is happening. And if the bride, if the bride's party, these uh, maidens, these 10 maidens, need to have enough oil to complete this time through the city to greet the bridegroom and the bride when they actually arrive to the feast, most likely at his home, because that's where the wedding will be, well, well the marriage will be consummated there at the at the bride. Well, the wedding home. feast really is the marriage because there was there was no equivalent to a a church wedding in that culture. It was a contractual right. arrangement, and so the wedding feast was the first public announcement and celebration of this new union. So it, it take the wedding feast is what we you know if you're invited to a wedding it's a very special occasion to go to in this case there was no church wedding there would have been but the wedding feast itself is 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 the culmination of of the whole process yeah and and the the issue with the the lamps is quite fascinating to me uh kenneth bailey brings up the point that usually when these lamps are carried number one uh women would not travel at night alone. And when they traveled, they would carry a lamp with them, even though starlight or moonlight would be enough to travel on a clear uh, summer evening, which is most likely when these wedding feasts would be held. The lamps were not held close to the feet to light the way. They were held close to the face to illuminate the face because uh, these maidens would want to be seen because those who are coming out at night without a lamp would be robbers, people with uh, ill intentions, Mm -hmm. prostitutes, uh, those of the criminal sorts who would come out at night and not want to be seen. So if a young maiden wants to keep her reputation, she's going to keep her lamp burning. She's going to keep it close to her face so that people can see who she is because she has nothing to hide. And in this party, this lamplight needs to be a part of the processional to greet the the bridegroom and the bride when they come into the wedding feast. And when these virgins, without the oil, without adequate oil, and remember there there's a whole dialogue here in, in Matthew 25 where the foolish virgins re- realize, oh, we don't have enough oil. Can you give us some of your oil? And they say, if we give us, if we give up our oil to you, 
there's not going to be enough oil left for us, so they say no. And uh, now they send these other five out to the market to get oil for themselves. And their opportunity to greet the bridegroom when he comes, they're caught not ready. So the point here is to be ready when the time comes. So verse 10 says, and while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding, and the door was shut. Afterwards, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, open the door to us. But the bridegroom answers, as surely I say to you, I do not know you. And what does it mean by I do not know you? It's I, I don't see your face. Mm. I don't know who you are. Um, you're not prepared. You weren't prepared. You didn't come with the others. Who's this at the door? So they have squandered their opportunity. They're literally unrecognizable because they don't have enough lamp light to be seen. And they did not prepare themselves adequately, which is a sign of honor and respect in an honor-shame society. What do you mean you're not ready? Or what do you mean you weren't with the others? What do you mean you didn't prepare? Um, this, is, this is a public event. And uh, the moral of the story in verse 13, watch therefore, Jesus says, for you neither know the day or the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. Honor and shame had to come to the forefront in this somehow. That is so such yeah. a presence in, in just about every part of, of Scripture in some way explains a lot of things. Um, interesting that you, that you would bring that up. Um, Thessalonians, though, you, you called it a, a controversial passage. <laughs> right. Hmm. Why yeah, so? Why yeah, so? You picked up on that. Well, in Thessalonians, again, you, you get, are you ready when the king returns or in you know in the parable of the wedding feast and the 10 young virgins you you get the bridegroom coming and in Thessalonians you get the king returning and the reason this is controversial is this is probably the sole passage where uh, the rapture theology gets pulled out of the scriptures hmm. So rapture meaning there's going to come a time where God's going to uh, beam me up out of this world uh, to be with him in heaven and, you know, in harps and clouds far, far away. And uh, this passage is often cited, First, First Thessalonians 4, starting verse 13. Paul says to the church in Thessalonica, he says, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. In other words, those who are, are have died and gone on. And the reason we talked about Lazarus and the rich man, we were talking about all saints last week. And those who have died and gone before us are those who, quote, are asleep. And we're not to grieve like we don't have hope. And we brought up the point that Paul says elsewhere in Corinthians, absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Verse 14 of Thessalonians 4, Paul goes on, For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who were fallen asleep. So immediately you get a picture that, that Jesus has died, he's buried, he's resurrected, he's ascended, and he will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. In other words, he will descend again. He will come back 
in, in the Anglican Church, we say Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. We proclaim the mystery of the of our faith during the Eucharistic service, and we say this: Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. And when he comes again, he's going to bring with him all those who are dead in the Lord, all the saints. This is what the Hebrews means when Hebrews says, we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. Mm. So if that's true, that there's this cloud of witnesses, a cloud of saints, these who are dead in the Lord will come with Jesus when he returns to the earth. And verse 15 says, for this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, and I hope that's me, but most likely I will die in the Lord and be in that great cloud. But let's just say Jesus comes back tomorrow and catches us here. Number one, are our lamps burning? Are we ready for that return? Because when he does return, uh, Paul says in verse 15, we will not precede those who are fallen asleep. In other words, those who are dead in the Lord are with him already. They're coming down here. They get to join their bodies. And this is in verse 16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry and command of the voice of the archangel, with the sound of a trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Now, wait a minute. I thought the dead in Christ were with Christ when he comes again, that those who have fallen asleep are with him. Yes, their bodies will resurrect. They will meet with their bodies. Their souls will meet with their bodies in the air. And then those of us who are alive, who are left here, we're also going to be caught up with them in the clouds to meet our Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Now, verse 17 is where we get this rapture theology, that we're going to get caught up together in the clouds, the cloud of witnesses, in the air to meet with the Lord. Now, the rapture theology says, okay, we're away from the earth, we've met the Lord in the air, and we're caught up in the clouds, the end, and then Paul ends the passage Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now, those who don't understand the cultural context, they're not allowing for the fact that Paul is talking to a Gentile audience who's understanding uh, Roman military uh, movements and that when a king goes off to war and he returns to his kingdom, everyone goes out to meet the king, to usher the king back into his kingdom. It, it's called a triumph. A Roman triumph is where a king is a victor and all the people greet him outside the city walls and bring him back into the city with all those who have conquered in battle. This is the image that Paul is evoking, invoking here, and it mimics when kings will enter the city, there's standing stones in the gates of the city where 
the one king will go out and greet another and bring him in. That's the other image that you get. And in the archaeological record, there are standing stones inside of city gates for those who are dignitaries inside the city to greet kings as they come back into this the city. This is like, like a podium, standing stones? Ab- absolutely, okay. yeah. And uh, those are uh, there, judgments are made. Uh, the business of the city is often conducted in the gate, as well as um, court uh, justice is served there. And so the person who is judging will stand on that stone. Uh, people who are high in authority will stand on that stone. The king of the city might stand on that stone. So you get the Roman triumph imagery of bringing the king back. I mean, this is the image of heaven that we pray in the Lord's Prayer. Thy will be done, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. If we believe that God is going to make all things new, which is what Jesus says in Revelation 21.5, Jesus says, behold, I make all things new, not all new things. So in other words, this is a restoration project. This is the four storylines of Scripture, creation, fall, rescue, and restoration, or the consummation of all things. And there's that wedding imagery when you use the word consummation instead of restoration. It's when the bride and the bridegroom become you reunited as one. They consummate their marriage. They become one again. And this is the image of Christ and his church. Remember, a marriage is a living um, parable of the coming kingdom of God. The unity and the oneness that we have as the bride of Christ with the bridegroom, the head of the church, Jesus Christ. And so all of this imagery, I mean, even what Paul, excuse me, John, the apostle John says in Revelation, he says, behold, I saw a new heaven and a new earth coming down from heaven like a bride adorned for her husband. So this imagery of consummation is a wedding imagery, a oneness, and a, a consummation or new life, new birth, new kingdom. It's a beautiful picture, but what does it mean to have enough oil in my lamp when the, yeah. when, when the, the bridegroom returns? Is that because I, I'm, I'm doing what a, a true disciple is, is meant to do, or I'm out uh, knocking on foreheads and saying, convert, convert, convert? Or what am I doing to indicate that I'm ready? Just being, yeah. ex- just expecting, just sitting there twiddling my thumbs. What does it mean to yeah. have have oil in my lamp and and to be ready? That's a great question. So all application, it said that it has been said that all application is implication. So the point of a parable is that we're implicated in the story, that we see ourselves somewhere. Um, maybe we see ourselves as always being ready, hyper vigilant. We've got oil in our lamps, and we know it. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. maybe that's us. Maybe when we're in that uh, house, as Kenneth Bailey says, when we're in the house of the parable and we look out that window to the world, we're looking out from the lens that we have oil in our lamps and, our, and we're ready. Now, some days that's true of me. Other days, when I look out that window, I see myself sitting in the dark. Hmm. I have no oil in my lamp. If I'm honest with you, 
there are days when I'm not ready, or I'm not thinking that Christ might come again, or I'm not considering his, his soon-and-coming kingdom. Uh, it's the mysterious already and not yet. Christ's kingdom has come, it is here, and it will come. And so all of these things are true, that Jesus is with us uh, spiritually, and he will come again physically, and we need to be ready. So what does that mean? Well, if we notice that our wick is, is smoldering, if we notice that the flame is dying down, and the wick is starting to smolder and smoke, um, well, it's time for some oil in the lamp. So what does that mean? Well, elsewhere in Thessalonians, right before this passage, uh, Paul warns the church in Thessalonica. He says, if you if you don't work, you don't eat, you need to busy yourself w- by working with your hands. It's where we get idle hands of the devil's workshop, that you should be busy um, working with your hands, live a quiet life, he said. And, and th- this is the whole setup, is a life pleasing to God in 1 Thessalonians 4. He says that you're to walk as those who please God. That's number one. If we want to be ready, we should walk in such a way or live in such a way that we want to, to please God. Let, and let me, we are to be sanctified. Let me in, interject. Let's go back to your, your description of the purpose of the lamp, and it's held to the face so people can see mm. who, the, mm-hmm. who the bridesmaid is. If we have oil in our lamp and the lamp is to our face, everybody yeah. can see who we really are, including, right. including the bridegroom. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and what, is, what does John say about that? John says, walk in the light. And you will, and in the light, there's no darkness at all. Um, John's gospel and John's letters focuses on light and darkness often. Uh, sin is walking in darkness when we hide in the shadows and we're not living in such a way. So again, how is that relevant? Well, those uh, those women who are walking in darkness, well, they're they're doing that to hide in the shadows. There's a there's a hint of sexual immorality, and Paul says in First Thessalonians four, uh, two to abstain three to abstain from sexual immorality. Control your body. Live in holiness and honor, not in the passions of the lust like the Gentiles, that no transgression and wrong be be evident, be above reproach. In other words. And here is how we are to walk in the light. We're to walk in the light and not in the darkness. We're to be ready to have oil in our lamps, be ready for the bridegroom to come. Well, see, you've done it. One card was Thessalonians, the next card, Matthew, (laughs) the third card, Amos. It's a winning hand, Robbie. Well, the day of the Lord, there you have it. That's all we got. Uh, Nicely done. And, and, Mm. And thank you for that. A great message. I'm sure David is now prepared to be the lector and to add whatever parenthetical comments he would like to well, say. Well, I remember, David, something. lector's not preacher. You know, you got to get <laughs> the Well, you know, I should, I'll just say, do you mind if I take a couple of minutes? That's right. Just <laughs> ask him. Maybe he'll let you have the sermon. Yeah, yeah. It, you know, I'll do the sermon. Yeah. Pastor Robbie, the uh, executive director of Preserving Bible Times. I don't think I mentioned that. Well, I think I, I suck, suck it in there. But you might want to visit the, the website, preservingbibletimes.org. You can link to it from our Broken Road site. Right over to the right-hand side, you'll see a Preserving Bible Times, a, 
a PBT graphic. Click on that and you'll discover a, a wealth of contextual teachings that fill in the blanks between the lines, and much like some of the context we've been talking about today with the, uh, the oil and the lamps and the, the, and the bridesmaids. Uh, PreservingBibleTimes.org, highly recommended to you. Robbie, thanks very much. Have a terrific week. You, you've served us well, and we'll look forward to next week. Bye-bye. Joy and a privilege to be with you all on the broken road. God bless.